Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. And Haley Knoth. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. So guys, on this show, many times we've discussed things that I consider fun, like Wordle and strategies to beat that game. Mm-hmm. I brought up doors versus wheels. We had a nice discussion about that. I've got another one in this vein that I just wanted to ask you guys if you're if you're in on this. Are you playing the game Framed? Oh, of course. Yes. I knew what? it, Alex. Okay. I'm not. You're going you're gonna to yeah. like this, Haley. So Framed is basically, people call it a version of Wordle. It's not because it's not based really, on pictures, though. but yeah. it's just to get it in the zeitgeist, I think. It's essentially a movie guessing game. So you get one still from the movie and you get a guess and you have six tries, but each time you get an additional still from the movie. So um, it's fun. Uh, that sounds today, awesome. Today, I'm I'm so glad you brought this up because today's was really funny because it's a, it was a black and white movie and the first and I I couldn't quite uh but I could tell it was like newer like not from like when black right. and white was the only way you could make movies. I think the first guess I had was the man who knew too much or no uh sorry the the uh, the man who wasn't there the uh, Coen yeah. Brothers movie. I guess that that wasn't it and then like I I guess something else and then the third frame was literally a piece of paper that said list at the top of it. It was clearly (laughs) Schindler's Schindler's List. List. Like, I was like, oh, it's a black and white movie that features a list. (laughs) It does narrow it down because the only (laughs) black and white movies that are modern, um, even before you get to the list part, which gives it away, but even just the black and white part, there are only so many. I mean, I would have guessed maybe The Artist. That was another big popular one. But yeah, there's only a few. But you can see how for, I mean, I think it's fair to say all three of us are movie buffs. So it is an intriguing game on that level to see if you can get it from a pretty obscure. Usually the first frame you get could be in any number of movies. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's what I, why I like it so much. It's a fun game. Um, I'll they don't dive give you, in. Yeah, no, go for it. Go for it. Uh, you know, I mean, we're all out here on the daily game grind and we will keep checking back in on that as circumstances warrant. Uh, we do have a really interesting uh, show for you today. Later on, Amber and I had a really interesting talk with Mike Curley, uh, one of our reporters here, who wrote a very cool story about a sort of wonky intersection of the law. It deals with what's called right to repair. And it's this idea that consumers are having issues when products that they buy need repairs. And because there are like sort of complex computer components and microchips. The only companies that can repair them are the companies that made them. And this, they're able to basically charge whatever they want. Um, and this implicates all kinds of things of consumer protection, antitrust, intellectual property, which the companies assert. He wrote about the various sort of legislative uh, litigation, regulation, pushback against this. And that was uh, a very interesting story to talk with him about. Yeah, Alex, you did a great overview there of how complex this can be. There's a lot going into it. But my little teaser for the listeners is stick around because we talk about McFlurries and it's very we do. important. Uh, this Ooh. is uh, part of the, the the quickly evolving area of McFlurry law. Sure. Um, which is <laughs> I'm not very dis- invested in it. So. It's not discussed enough. We all I'm, are. Yeah, I'm proud to be a thought leader uh, in this topic. <laughs> I think we all are with Pro Se, uh, a leader in discussing McFlurry law and theory. But uh, first up, uh, we we do have some news to get to. And I wanted to first 
just kind of shine a light on this uh, very intriguing case that's that's playing out in Boston federal court, which is um, a suit against various U.S. gun makers, which is not surprising. Gun makers get sued all the time. But this is a little bit different. Um, this is a suit that has been brought by the Mexican government that seeks to hold these gun companies accountable for deaths and violence that are caused by their guns that are trafficked across the border. The companies moved to dismiss the suit this week, and the judge who is hearing it kind of expressed a little bit of consternation about the sort of hornet's nest that they that he might be wading into if you create this new avenue for sovereign nations to challenge the distribution of guns made in the U.S. all around the world. Lots of interesting components to this. Uh, an interesting case to talk about. Yeah, this one definitely sounds like it has some things that are potentially a little confusing about what's even allowed here. I mean, sure. is there legal recourse for governments? I know traditionally gun makers are very difficult to sue, even for just consumers or other companies. What about when it comes to, a, like you said, a, a sovereign government? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like I said, this is being brought by the Mexican government and the government has sued Various gun makers, Glock, Smith & Wesson, Beretta, others. And they basically accuse those companies of undermining Mexico's... Mexico has very strict gun laws. And they say that these companies are designing, marketing, and distributing military-style assault weapons in ways that they know would arm drug cartels, which obviously, I mean, if you, if you follow the news in Mexico, can fuel... Uh, murders, kidnappings, all kinds of uh, uh, violent crime. So this is an unusual case, but like I am saying there, this all comes down to knowledge. Mexico says that these gun companies know for a fact that their products are contributing to and facilitate the, the funneling of guns to Mexico. Um, and it's really, uh, it kind of tees up this really thorny battle over like you were saying, Amber, there are carve-outs in U.S. gun laws that shield gun makers from liability for, you know, violent crimes committed with their products, you know, that, that they are mostly written to absolve gun makers of those crimes. Um, but this presents it in a new way that I think has a lot of people paying attention. I, I'm really curious what the, the central legal question is here. Like, what laws are we really implicating yeah. So like anytime you bring a suit against a gun maker for liability for a, a crime committed with one of its products, you are litigating over what is called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. And what that law says is that in most cases, gun makers cannot be sued for the lawful sale of firearms. After they lawfully sell it, anything that happens after that, they wash their hands of it for the most part. There are caveats, which we will discuss in a second. Um, the catch here is that Mexico is suing over harms that occurred in Mexico. So they are saying that the U.S. law does not hold sway there. The idea Ooh. that it doesn't reach out extraterritorial, like it, it does not have extraterritoriality. Yeah. So there is that question about the extraterritorial reach of the law. But Mexico is making another argument as well. They say that even if the law does apply, it cannot be invoked when a gun company violates state or federal law. And that has to do with the, specifically with the marketing of the guns. And 
for that argument, they have latched on to the lawsuit that has been filed by the parents of the Sandy Hook shooting victims, which has sort of slowly drawn through state court and over like the past decade and uh, ended in a $73 million settlement uh, in February. And that was sort of, it's a settlement, so nobody wins, but that was viewed as a huge victory for the parents just because of how airtight these laws are against gun companies, like I just said. So Mexico is pinning a lot of hopes to that Sandy Hook litigation, but the most of the discussion in the dismissal hearing this week focused on that first issue, which is the idea of foreign governments having a cause of action to say that, you know, these gun makers are making dangerous products and they are then causing danger within our borders. Yeah, let's talk some more about that, because uh, clearly, if this went Mexico's way, yeah, it could open the door to a lot, right? Because American arms end up lots of places outside of the U.S. We make a lot of guns, uh, as it turns out, and they go to a lot of places. Again, the gun makers had moved to dismiss Mexico's complaint, basically saying that they are covered by this liability shield that I outlined in this law. And when uh, he was questioning the lawyer for the Mexican government, Massachusetts judge Dennis Saylor basically teased out some of the implications of the argument here, um, suggesting, like you say, Amber, that it could open the door for lots of other things. Here was um, sort of an instructive quote from the questioning. If the concern is military-type weapons, if Ukrainians are using U.S.-manufactured weapons or Smith & Wesson revolvers, can the government of Russia come in and say, you have caused us harm, U.S. arms manufacturers, by the manufacturing of these guns and killing Russian soldiers, and we are suing for damages? Why not, if your theory is right? The Mexican lawyers basically said that that's a little bit different. That involves like an active war, which invokes different strands of international law. But the judge kept pressing him on it. He said, you know, what about Italy suing for, you know, uh, mafia crime within its borders or um, uh, El Salvador suing for MS-13 gang violence within its borders? And when push came to shove, the Mexican lawyer didn't quite have an answer. I mean, he they, these are... These are hypotheticals. And he basically said, uh, quote, I haven't given that thought, Your Honor. I don't know the answer to that. So, you know, the judge is clearly concerned with some of the bigger pictures of this line of argument. That doesn't mean that the case lives and dies with that reading. But that, I thought, was a pretty remarkable uh, uh, exchange here from this uh, hearing. That's pretty interesting because I do think that there are people out there, whether it's the attorneys for the Mexican government or others, that might be like, yeah, I mean, that is what we're saying. Maybe El Salvador, Italy, or some of these other impacted places yeah. should sue. I mean, or at least know, should be able to. Right? Minds like, may I, differ, yeah. right? Minds may differ mm -hmm. on whether or not they can prove um, actual damages and all that kind of stuff. But like the idea that they could bring it to court, I think maybe they'd say they should. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we're gonna uh, we're gonna stay tuned on how this motion to dismiss plays out. If you are interested in this case, um, I, I highly recommend Chris Villani's reporting. He always does amazing work with what's going on in Boston Federal Court. And this is no different. Um, really good uh, reporting from Chris on that. The last thing I'll note is that Mexico's suit has also been backed by 14 Democratic state attorneys general in the United States. Uh, so this isn't some 
like one-off lark type of thing. This is um, something that a lot of pro-gun control political forces are mobilizing behind and are throwing their weight behind. Um, and uh, we'll have to stay tuned and sort of see uh, how the courts grapple with these questions. Let's turn now to a battle as old as time, the extent of and limits to the authority of U.S. regulators. I love it. Just I'm excited about exciting. it. Exciting. I am excited. <laughs> I do like talking about what regulators can do. It's the nerd in me, so I'm in. That is that is the administrative state's music. Can you hear it? It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's echoing through the arena. Haley, what are we <sighs> talking about here? We are talking about the SEC. It is battling opposition to a new proposal that would require more climate risk-related disclosures from public companies, and Republicans are not happy about it. So what the agency wants is more information on greenhouse gas emissions, the business risks related to severe weather events, and the transition to smaller carbon footprints. But dozens of Republicans are very, very against it, and they're even really going after the SEC's authority to issue a rule like this to begin with. Yeah, there's okay. a couple levels of attack here. I think we should, before we like, sort of unpack the back and forth, let's talk exactly what the proposed rule says. I know it, I mean, the SEC requires companies to disclose their expenditures and financial details about any number of things. What is this rule all about? It's really a long-awaited rule proposal, and its backers say that it would help bring investors really important information on companies' climate risks. They want uh, more information on direct and indirect emissions that are linked to operations and energy purchases. Um, they want more information on actual or likely material impacts that climate risks could have on their businesses, on strategies, and on expenditures. And among those risks, like I mentioned, would be severe weather events and transition risks, which means the risks associated with changing strategies or policies or whatever you got to do to reduce that reliance on carbon and reduce your impact on the mm -hmm. climate. And so this was unveiled late last month. The SEC voted three to one to issue the rule. And the sole dissent came from the SEC's one Republican commissioner. Yeah, so, I mean, no surprise there, right? Republicans often are on the side of less burdens on companies, so more reporting they would see as a burden. Is that basically the argument they made here? Basically, yeah. They're arguing it would be just a ton of work and really unreasonable, potentially impossible for companies to comply with. They also say the proposal comes at a really bad time. We're in the midst of global turmoil, surging energy prices. Uh, the requirements will really only exacerbate the energy crisis and do nothing to help everyday Americans heat or cool their homes. It won't reduce costs or anything, according to the Republicans, of course. Yeah, and beyond the substance, you, you indicated in the intro that there's a more sort of substantive fight over even the the authority of the SEC to make rules like this. What are they saying there? Right. So they're saying that basically current SEC disclosure mandates are intended to provide investors with insightful material information into a company's performance. But the new disclosures, those kind of step outside of that historical purview and maybe are veering into environmental policy mm -hmm. a little bit. 
And in a letter late last week, a group of 19 Republican senators argued that public companies already have to disclose material risks and the agency lacks the legal authority to require non-material ones like what would be included in this new rule. So basically, we hate this rule and you can't make it anyway. (laughs) essentially essentially yeah okay and like and this is this is like drawn a lot of headlines i know it's why we're talking about it on our legal news podcast what what have the proponents said sort of both generally about the rule and then also sort of indirect response to these attacks the sec chair gary gensler says that many public companies are on board with the push for more climate related risk disclosures He also said investors with trillions in assets under management are likewise requesting that information already, and companies around the world are really embracing similar measures. Commissioner Allison Heron-Lee has called the proposal a watershed moment for investors and financial markets. She said the science is clear, it's really, really scary, and the links to capital markets are pretty direct and evident. So when it comes to the authority argument, Lee said the agency has the ability to require disclosure as necessary or appropriate in the public interest or for the protection of investors. And the agency also has the authority to get investors the information they need to make investing decisions. That includes climate change information, Lee said. Yeah, so taking a broad view there that this could encompass any number of disclosures because we're in the disclosures game. So give us some more stuff. Yep. Gensler really doubled down on that on Tuesday and just said exactly that, Amber. He's like, hey, what? I don't know what you think this agency does, but we just issue disclosure. We ask for disclosures. That's what we do. So what should we be watching next? I mean, it seems like we've got two pretty entrenched camps here that either love or hate this rule. So the comment period is ongoing. And Gensler said, you know, don't worry. The agency will consider all the comments and maybe making some changes. Who knows what those changes could be? We'll just have to wait and see. If you can't easily repair your car, do you even own it? That is the question at the center of our main segment this week as we explore the difficulties consumers face when sellers of goods maintain exclusive and costly rights to keep them in proper working order. The push against this dynamic has come to be known as the right to repair, which Law 360's Mike Curley broke down in an illuminating story for us last week. He joins us on Pro Se to talk us through this consumer conflict and the various legal fights that are unspooling from it. Welcome to the show, Mike. Glad to be here, Alex. Thank you so much for joining the show. I really thought it was a uh, such an interesting story you wrote. It's an interesting little like collision of various legal areas for us, where you're talking a little bit about like it's at bottom a consumer protection issue um, that kind of collides with companies trying to assert proprietary knowledge and intellectual property. All of that kind of bundled up in a general worry over antitrust concerns, anti-competitive things, right? And so it's a very interesting bucket, uh, uh, several buckets here. I just kind of wanted to lay out the basics. What are the problems that people are running into with regard to like companies repairing 
increasingly complex products? Well, it's, it's uh, partly time and partly money. Uh, the time part is that, you know, if you can't repair something on your own, that means you have to take time out of your day, bring it somewhere or wait for a technician. Uh, the example that kept coming up was, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the nice day like today, you might go out and see everybody out working on their cars. Yeah. You know, everybody had tools out, but now, you know, there's so many more complex things, computers, et cetera, in even cars, uh, toasters, everything that if something breaks down, you're almost afraid to, or you just don't have the diagnostic tools. Mm -hmm. So you have to take time out. And also if the tools are only available to the, uh, original equipment manufacturer, then they can kind of charge whatever they want. If Apple is the only company that can repair your iPhone and the, uh, the shop in the strip mall can't, you know, they, they don't have competition. And that's one of the biggest concerns. And it's, it's become a bigger thing as things have gotten more complex, where, as I said, everything's got a computer in it now. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, you don't, not everybody has the electrical engineering degree necessary to fix some things. So when something gives you an error, locks up, you really kind of have no choice but to bring it to somebody else. And if you have to bring it to the guy who made it, they can tell you whatever they want. They can tell you, oh, this is broken. You have to replace it. When really it's just, you know, would be much easier to repair. Yeah, it seems like this is um, the kind of thing that once you start thinking about it, you realize how many things in your day-to-day -day life do include complex components. I mean, it's not just cars that are a big thing, but I was just thinking about all the appliances just in my kitchen. There's so many that I wouldn't know the first thing about how to fix them. Yeah, that that is definitely an aspect of it that, you know, everything that has the word smart in the title now. Right, yeah. It means it's too smart for me to fix. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and you almost kind of normalize this. It was like, I mean, there's no way I could ever fix my dishwasher like by myself. Maybe I never could. Um, you know, maybe like 40 or 50 years ago. But like the idea that like even you can't even take it to a mom and pop repair shop. It's only like you say, the proprietary manufacturers um can do it, and that creates pricing concerns. Um, and that kind of leads to um, I think that the legal push here that you wrote about called right to repair, um, and you wrote about a couple of different sort of fronts that advocates are fighting this fight uh, on. And the first thing you wrote about was with regard to regulation, because this mm -hmm. is a competition concern about keeping prices low for consumers. The Federal Trade Commission has been keeping an eye on this. What has that effort looked like? Well, uh, it kind of starts with uh, about about this time last year, actually, in May, they put out a report kind of going over the history of enforcing right to repair and how it has evolved as things have gotten more complex, because mm -hmm. it used to be more tied up in uh, warranty law, where instead right. of instead of keeping the tools to diagnose things, a, a product might come with a warranty that said, you know, oh, if you open this, if you try to repair it yourself, that voids the warranty. and that has been, you know, that that is ad addressed in federal law. But as things got more complex, it's become, I guess, easier for companies to just not give out the tools. So the FTC put together this report, kind of laying out all the aspects of it. And their conclusion was that basically that something needs to be done. And they actually passed a policy statement last year, too, unanimously saying something needs to be done. Of course, the trick is, 
uh, you know, they're a regulator, so there's rules to what they can regulate. Mm. And they're one of several. And this impacts so many industries that, for instance, any rule they make, they have to make sure it fits with national highway traffic, etc. And other agencies, so they're not stepping on each other's toes. Plus, as a federal regulator, they can't create a, a private right of action. Anything that they create, they have to enforce. And they have to go into, you know, what enforcement abilities they have. And of course, anything they have to enforce as resources. And of course, there's uh, the counter arguments, you know, because the report includes both for and against. Yes. And obviously the the manufacturers, they are very much against. And there's arguments for cybersecurity, uh, intellectual property, and safety issues. Among the ones they brought up were uh, for cybersecurity. A lot of these components might be collecting data. For instance, your car has, you know, GPS data in it, or you might be connected to your phone. So, you know, if you mm-hmm. give the tools to the repair shop, could they get into that? Intellectual property, they're all saying that the di- diagnostic tools and programs are their company secrets. And for safety, they're saying things like, you know, a mom and pop shop might not be able to correctly repair your washing machine or pointing to things like lithium-ion batteries in phones and computers and such, which are not standardized. If I took one lithium-ion battery out of my phone, replaced it with another, it might be the wrong size, the wrong charge. And, you know, the phones, they've been exploding enough as it is in the last couple of years. (laughs) Right, (laughs) yes. I mean, this is a really um, murky, (laughs) it sounds like a murky regulatory world we're in. I, I mean... Not that lawmakers always make things more clear, but in this instance, it does sound like maybe they could. So have the feds or have any state lawmakers been wading into this to try to clear up some of what can be done? Yeah, actually, uh, there's about half the states, a little more than half the states have either passed or introduced. I think most of them have been introduced with only a few being actually passed. Massachusetts, I believe in 2012, passed a right to repair law that focused on the auto industry. And as I understand it, most of the auto industry has kind of adopted those terms nationwide. So you do have a lot of sharing of diagnostic tools among the manufacturers and mom and pop shops. Now, there was a more recent amendment in the last couple of years that is being fought. And uh, that's being fought because it increases how much information they have to send over. And that's where they're getting into, oh, this is proprietary, et cetera. Yeah. And I think that that can, that, that can take us to the next thing that we want to talk about, which is obviously when there's this much you know, contention over these like very sensitive areas of the law, there are going to be lawsuits. You talked a little bit about how there's even a challenge to laws that have been passed here. There's also like actions against companies themselves. What are we looking at on the litigation front for, uh, on the right to repair front? Okay, well, yeah, the uh, the first one that popped up was in Massachusetts, uh, a yeah. group of auto companies. They're challenging the law, basically making the arguments that the FTC highlighted that, uh, you know, it, I believe the update to the law forces them to hand over or to, to allow access to things like GPS and internal computer systems that they, they say has private data in it. And they're, they're fighting it with those terms. And in fact, some companies have started in Massachusetts changing how the vehicles work. Like they will ship them to Massachusetts with a lot of the features disabled mm-hmm. so that they don't have to worry about the law. 
Uh, on the other side of it, uh, there was a couple lawsuits recently by uh, farmers against John Deere and ice cream machine repair company against McDonald's over the McFlurries. I was I was very interested in this part of the thing. It was the, this is the McFlurry part of the story, the tractors yeah. and McFlurries, which I mean, it's this is like. Everyone knows these products, but this is how this stuff manifests. Tell us about those lawsuits. Yeah. Well, the John Deere one is interesting because, I mean, a tractor, you would think, is a fairly, I mean, we've had tractors for about, you know, 70 or 80 years. Right. Yeah. What <laughs> needs to change? But, you know, newer tractors, like newer cars, they have computer systems in it. Sure. Yeah. So if something goes wrong, the allegation is the computer in the tractor shuts everything down, puts it into what's referred to as, as limp mode, where the tractor can move but you can't use it. Mm -hmm. And John Deere has apparently not made the diagnostic tools available. So the option is, you know, bring it somewhere or wait for a John Deere person to come out. But, you know, when you're using the tractor, that means you're harvesting and time is an issue. Yeah, time-sensitive thing I've heard for the farming industry, yeah. obviously. So the yes. farmers, it, it's not just that they have to pay extra or have to wait. It, it's that they have to wait and you could lose a crop and mm -hmm. that could put a farmer out of business if it's a particularly bad weight. That's a really serious uh, look at this about the consequences of these. But <laughs> uh, I'm a little more interested in the uprising that's going to ensue when people realize that the right to repair has something to do with whether or not they can get a McFlurry. Yeah, that that is the big one. That's I've, I was actually watching a YouTube video about that whole suit. And it is a little it, it's fascinating because apparently, you know, Wendy's the ice cream machine's always working. Right. Never heard anybody complaining about Burger King. It's just McDonald's. The huge meme around McDonald's, like if you find a McDonald's with a working ice cream machine, it's like the lost, it's like the lost <laughs> city of Atlantis or something. Yeah. yeah, there's there's apps to track whether they're working or not. <laughs> right. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So what is that? I mean, that's I, I assume that makes similar claims. What is what do those lawsuits look like? That's from consumers, I assume, or yeah, from this is yeah. from actually a competitor. Uh, McDonald's, uh, they have a company that made the ice cream machines and that they contract to repair them. Oh, yes. Yeah. The suit is from another company that also repairs ice cream machines. <laughs> and what they're saying is that the machines are made such that when they go wrong, they put in like this, they put out this indecipherable error message. And the manual is like, all roads lead to call of repair technician. <laughs> right. Yes. Sure. <laughs> so they call it a, a, a quote, repair racket where what they're accusing is that McDonald's basically just funnels, they, they, they make these machines so that you can't just repair them on their own, and you have to go to this one specific company, and the company that's suing, Kitsch, they developed a device that deciphered the error messages and just popped out, here's what you do to fix it, and they're alleging that McDonald's sent out like a company memo, oh, this thing is dangerous, it'll break the machine and you know put your mm -hmm. lives at risk. And basically what they're saying is they're being iced out, if you'll excuse the pun, of the, <laughs> yeah. of the business yeah. uh, you know, in favor of McDonald's chosen contractor. And that's where the, like, the antitrust law right. is coming in. They're, they're alleging a, a, a tying a monopoly between mm -hmm. the companies. So the minute we hang up this call, I'm going to start um, getting out my poster board and making an ice cream themed uh, picket sign. Where am I going to take that? What are we expecting in these lawsuits? Do we think we're going to solve the, the biggest problem of all, McFlurries? Uh, well, it's it's a little early to tell. The lawsuit was only filed last uh, month, I believe. And I was looking at the docket last week, and McDonald's hasn't 
responded yet. So it's, it is kind of early to tell. And even, you know, my sources for the story kind of like said, yeah, it's, it's uh, hard to read the tea leaves. Uh, but looking forward, you know, the, the lawsuits, we're going to have to look at that and see how they progress. I'm sure there are going to be motions to dismiss and, and yep. all kinds of very novel arguments. And, uh, you know, looking forward, I think, you know, legislatively, that might, they might influence each other. You know, if those suits mm-hmm. go forward fast enough, that might influence the state and federal law or vice versa. For instance, in at, on Capitol Hill last month, a group of senators, uh, both Democrat and Republican, put out, uh, they introduced a law bolstering the right to repair. I think it focused on electronics. And it, it does seem to be a bipartisan issue that, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the rare things that's not getting divided, Democrats, Republicans. It's something that there's a lot of frustration on both sides of the aisle. And, you know, it hits the antitrust, it hits consumer protection, all very popular things. So I think between that and like the dozens of bills that have been put in the state, I think there is going to be movement within, you know, conservatively speaking, the next couple of years. And I think the federal law in particular will help to kind of uh, standardize it because, you know, two dozen states, each putting separate laws out, some of them are for automotive. Some of them specifically exclude automotive. Mm -hmm. Some of them might have different components, different criteria. And it might be a thing where whoever comes out with the strongest law for the states, that becomes the standard or otherwise with the federal, because the federal would probably have preemption over the states. It's a fascinating story. There are a, there are so many things to keep track of here. And Mike, I think you did a really uh, awesome job breaking it down uh, both here for us on the show and in your piece, which I would encourage everyone to read. Uh, read Mike Curley on the right to repair. Fascinating topic. And thanks for joining us on Pro Se. Oh, thanks for having me. show is something offbeat. And this week, I want to talk about a contentious trademark fight. Uh, normally, I love getting in the weeds of IP law, but I don't even really want to talk about the case itself so much as just the facts of this one really tickle me as a former resident of Washington, D.C. I also am a former resident of Washington, D.C., as we've discussed on the podcast before. And this involves some some DC shenanigans, but also my one of my favorite subgenres of the offbeat, which is where nerdy ass corporate lawyers who just litigate minutia all day like try and talk like action movie heroes or something. Oh sure. It's like so that's in this too. Yeah. Let me set us up. So we have two high profile lawyer-turned-lobbyists that head up competing D.C. lobbying groups, so policy wonks, basically. Mm -hmm. The names of these two companies, one is Monument Advocacy, and the other one is Monument Strategies. Ooh. Uh Uh-oh. I'm sensing a dispute here. (laughs) Uh, You can see where the problem may have occurred. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so Monument Advocacy is headed up by a lawyer who served in the Bush administration And he used to be a congressional attorney for former Republican senators Don Nichols and Orrin Hatch. It had several names over the years, this company. It was Monument Policy Group for a while. They filed a federal trademark application for that name in 2006. 
Two years later, they filed for another trademark registration for Monument Advocacy. Meanwhile, you have Monument Strategies. That one was founded by a guy named Jonathan Alexander. He's an attorney who served in senior level positions with several Democratic members of Congress. And that company says it's been in operation since 2005 using that Monument Strategies name. So I'm going to quit saying the word monument because it's starting to not sound like a word anymore. (laughs) Uh, But basically, advocacy filed a complaint against Strategies. After the attorney, Alexander, sent this email saying, hey, advocacy, you've got to change your name. And he issued a bunch of threats. Very, allegedly, very strong party planning committee versus the committee to plan parties. (laughs) Stuff going on right now. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So let me tell you about these so-called threats or you you can weigh in and tell me if you think of them as threats or not. Yeah. But there were a series of emails where Alexander complained that advocacy is actually too similar to strategies. So, um, you know, again, the full names are Monument Advocacy, Monument Strategies. But he said that just because advocacy and strategies themselves are synonyms, that that is what makes this all so much worse. Um, so I want to give a couple of his quotes from the, these emails. There are a couple of them. And I'm cleaning up a few typos, but you'll get the idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I let you slide previously, but there is too much confusion on your new name. Advocacy is much too close to strategies. Case law is on my side. You're going to have to change your name. Then he sent a subsequent email. I'm a lawyer and I will bleed you to death. We should talk because I suggest you change your name. Otherwise, I will tie you up in litigation for years. My goodness. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's such a deceleration of threats, right? I will bleed you to death. Oh, no. What I'm actually going to do is tie you up in litigation. Okay, Look, uh, that can bleed one of the monument companies to death. Yes, I know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when he says bleed, I was thinking money-wise. Sure. And it's a DC attorney. It's definitely he means money. He I will for sure bleed you to death. Yeah, it's it's just it's just so it's just so dramatic. I also love God. I there, there I mean, I already said how it really entertains me when these like pencil neck DC attorneys start talking like tough guys. And then also the fact that it's all about like what we call our like nonsense job lobbying. Yeah, I love that too. No, man, listen, I advocate you strategize. (laughs) All right. How about we stay in each other's lanes and stick to what we know best. I miss DC, guys. I do. I miss it. Um, (laughs) I love picturing this guy just like just red in the face, veins oh, yeah. throbbing, typing this email and just like pounding his keyboard to hit send. This is the kind of argument I would have had over some drinks at a bar with friends in D.C. about is there a difference between advocacy and strategy? Um, so Ugh. I love this for so many reasons. But basically what we expect here, I mean, I guess I should give a little hat tip to the actual suit and what it's all about. But the arguments over Essentially, who used um, one of these monument names first and are they too similar? And did one of these companies kind of sleep on complaining so long that they basically acquiesced to the use of the other name? So that's what the actual meat of this litigation will be. Mm -hmm. But I did want to just kind of end this recap. I think we sort of set it throughout. But just on three things that I love about this so much, um, just to warn you guys that, I don't know, I may want to talk about this again in the future because it's just like the perfect storm of a story. The first thing, it is in fact Democrats versus Republicans, which yes. that's why I put that bit of info into the earlier bit of the conversation that this is a classic uh, partisan dispute. And it is about dueling monuments, which 
is such a generic DC name. I love that so much. That's like in LA, you know, everything is named, oh, the Hollywood mechanics sure. office. Whatever. The Hollywood a shoe. Big Apple up here. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's like anything that just feels too much like, yeah, no kidding. You're a monument something in DC. Shocker. Um, and then, like you said, Alex, I too love lawyers threatening uh, with a lot of bravado and yeah. Saying they will make litigation a nightmare is also kind of hilarious for one lawyer group to say to another group led by <laughs> another lawyer. Like, no kidding. We know how litigation works. So I love that. Yeah, there's there, there's lots to like here. This is not a legal solution. If I were like an arbitrator, for example, I would say, let me see your business cards. Who has more monuments on their oh, business cards? I'm guessing choice. they both got the Washington Monument. That's a Jefferson. given. Jefferson. They probably both have the Capitol, even though that's not a monument. Uh, that's a building. Uh, I'd say they would have Jefferson, <laughs> and then the the tie break might be: Do you are you including Lincoln? Are you including the Lincoln? Yeah, maybe. Uh, so that's part of it. I mean, I think I'm I'm endlessly entertained. Uh, I'm curious to see where it goes. I think we can all agree, though. You have to strategize for your advocates, and you have to advocate for your strategists. A hundred percent. That's the most important takeaway from this whole story. Seems like a perfect place to end today's show. Uh, <laughs> thanks, you guys, for being with me today. Thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Mike Curley, and our contributing reporters, Chris Filani, Al Barbarino, and Bonnie Esslinger. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano, and if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review anywhere you're listening to podcasts. That definitely helps other people find our show. If you want to read more about what we've talked about today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.